Um, if you're a guest here, uh, welcome to our family room. It's kind of what this is. Does anybody know what day it is today? Wait, we're clapping already. What is it? It's Pentecost. Great reason to clap, though. <laughs> um, I mean, it's uh, one of those, in the, in, in the Hebrew, it's Shavuot, and it's one of the three major feasts. Uh, it's a feast that celebrates uh, the giving of God's Word. It's the feast that celebrates the giving of God's Spirit. So I'm kind of surprised that I forgot about it until today. Um, sorry about that. That, that. That's on me, but I thought I'd start with that. All right, we are starting this new series that we're calling Meals with Jesus. And um, you're thinking we're going to the New Testament, but we're not. Let's turn our Bibles to Genesis 18. If you have a Bible that looks like this, it's on page 13, 12 and 13. And one of the things that we uh, like to do, um, if you can do it physically, great. If you want to just do it in your heart, uh, we like to stand for the reading of God's Word. So let's do that. And the Lord appeared to Abram near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. And Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried. Does anybody have another translation for hurried? Ran. It's really what it says in the original language. He ran. And I'm highlighting that because it's significant. Um, he... ran from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my sirs, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought. Then you may all wash your feet, rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat, so you may be refreshed and then go on your way. And now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham again ran into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, Get three seahs of the finest flour and knead it. Bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to the servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and he set these before them. And while they ate, he stood near them under a tree I'm sure he has a big smile on his face as well. This is God's word for now. You can be seated. So uh, Abraham is there. He's sitting in his tent. And the text tells us it's, it's in the hotter part of the day. And trust me, this is uh, kind of in that desert region of Israel. And it can get very hot. So it could be anywhere from 100 to 110 on a really hot day, 120 degrees. And he's sitting there, and these three strangers show up. Now, there's nothing unusual about these three men. Because from all appearances, that's just what they are. They're, they're, they're three ordinary men. They're, they're just three strangers that are passing by. However, verse one, of, verse 1 tells us that one of these strangers is the Lord. So then you have to ask, like, who is Abraham looking at? And scholars, theologians, have these fancy terms like theophany. Um, 
they love using these Greek words because the moment you use a, word, a Greek word like theophany, you all of a sudden sound smart and intelligent. Theo simply means God. Uh, Thani, that part of it, means uh, appearing. So a theophany is when God appears in human form. Another uh, term that they have is the term typology, which is applied to characters like Melchizedek that we looked at last week, um, this, this king of righteousness, this king priest. Um, and, and they say, well, that, that's a type of Christ. It's, and I remember just kind of being in seminary, okay, what, what do you mean by a type of Christ? Is it actually Christ or is it not Christ? Um, they say not Christ but a type, a prototype. Now, I could accept that if the story of Melchizedek and Abraham was a parable, if it was fiction. But it isn't. It's a real flesh and blood story. It's, it's a historical event, which means that we have someone who is described on the historical scene who is not Christ, but a type of Christ, but who's described as every bit as great as Christ. Not just a king-priest, but someone who is eternal. Which then leaves us with two competing Christs. Now, I've, I've literally, like, I, I, I've looked at this, because I'm like, why, why do we do this? Um, why do scholars want to do this? I want to know the why behind that what. And, and, and here's what I have concluded. Here's the why. There are reasons why scholars cannot accept Melchizedek as Jesus, partly just because they don't want Jesus in the Old Testament. They only want Jesus in the New Testament so that Jesus can only be for Christians. Now, what settles this for me are the New Testament interpretations of the Old Testament theophanies. So when you take the Isaiah 6 theophany, where, where Isaiah is in the temple and, and, and he sees the Lord in all his glory, and, and you're left asking again, like, who is he looking at? Um, what, what is it that he actually sees? And um, we, we, we'd left, be left debating that, but we have John 12, verse 41. Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus the glory of Jesus, and he wrote about it. Or, or how about this one in Jude 1 verse 5? And I'll just read it. You don't have to go there, but you can go there if you want. It's the second to last book of the Bible right before Revelation. And this is what it says. I, though you already know all of this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt. You guys know that story, right? The Lord delivering his people out of Egypt. Well, if you go down to the footnote, because there is a footnote there, you see that the early manuscripts, it's the earliest manuscripts, do not have the Lord, but they have Jesus. I want to remind you that Jesus at one time delivered his people from Egypt. That is an amazing text. That text means that the, the one who led Israel out of Egypt was Jesus. 
And see, Paul says the glory of God is in the face of Christ, which means that when people see the face of God, it's the face of Christ, which means Jesus is all over the book. So I hope you, I hardly have to ask right now who is standing before Abraham's tent. It's, it's Jesus. But Abraham doesn't know that. To Abraham, it's just a stranger with two other guys that are, that are passing by. And that's significant because look at Abraham's response to these three strangers. This hundred-year-old man gets up and he runs to them. Now, I've spent a lot of time in, in, in the Middle Eastern culture. Old men do not run. They don't. It's not because they're lazy. It's because it's too undignified in that culture. It's too shameful. It, it, it's too dishonorable for an old man to have to lift up his robes, robe, bare his legs, and start running. There are only two times in our Bible where an old man runs. One is here, and where's the other one? The parable of the prodigal. That father shamefully runs to his son. I mean, what a powerful picture of, 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 of who God is. And Abraham, like the father, will shame himself. He will shame himself uh, to welcome three strangers. He runs to them. He bows at their feet. He washes their feet. He says, let me get you something to eat. Then he runs a second time in the tent. Sarah, Sarah. Uh, let's go. There's visitors here. Let's prepare a meal. Then he runs a third time uh, to his flocks to find the best that he has there. Here's another footnote. Jewish scholars make the point to say that three days pass between chapter 17 and chapter 18. Remember the chapter headings are things that we've added to the Bible. What happens in chapter 17? Just look. Abraham circumcised. Okay, I don't need to say anymore. I'm not going to sit here and talk about what circumcision is if you don't know what that is. Um, but this, this guy's in a world of hurt. It's the hot part of the day. He's 100 years old, and he's running. And why is he doing this? For the simple reason, he wants to lavish these strangers with his very best. Verse 7, uh, get the best cut of meat. Um, he's, he's going to his flocks and herds. It's, it's like when, when, when we, for maybe that special occasion, go to our freezer and, and, and get that choice uh, steak that we have saved for, for an anniversary. He tells Sarah, he says, Sarah, uh, get, get the finest flour. In fact, three seahs. <laughs> three seahs. A sia is approximately 20 pounds of flour. So we have 60 pounds of flour. I mean, this is enough. I, I know you guys don't know much about probably making bread. Um, 
Sorry if I assume that about you. But this is a lot of bread. This is bread for probably hundreds of people. I don't think there's a text in all of Scripture that paints a picture of what God's people are to be in this world than Genesis 18. What, what's the most profound thing we can say about God? I mean, there's so many things we can say about God. There, there, there's so many definitions that we can attach to God, but the most profound thing we can say about God is how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father. He's a Father. And, and, and God's mission, this Father's mission, is to redeem. And we've been learning this the last couple of weeks. Redeem is a word that comes out of uh, this ancient world. It's, it, it's the patriarch. It's, it's, it's the father of a clan doing whatever it takes to restore a lost, marginalized family member back to the family. It's to bring them home. It's to restore them to the father's love, to the father's care, to the father's protection, to the father's arms, um, that's what the word redeem means. And this is God's mission. How about Abraham? Do you know what his name means? Well, God changes his name actually from Abram. Does anybody know what Abram means? Abram means great father. But that's not good enough for God. God says you're going to be more than just a great father. So he changes it to Abraham which means great father of a great multitude. In other words, Abraham, as I have been a father to you, I want you to be a father to my world. I want you to be what I'm about. I want you to redeem. I want you to bring, bring in the marginalized and the lost. Bring them home. And that's why I don't think it's a coincidence that in our Bibles, um, that the, the, the two times where you have someone running is, is this place and also the parable of the prodigal. These aren't just two old men that are running. These are two fathers. Can you see them? Because Jesus wants you to see them. He, he wants you to see this father who, when we've blown it and we've made a mess of our lives, when he sees us off in the distance, he's that father on a porch. When he lifts his head and he sees us, he runs. He runs. He, he, he shamefully just lifts up his, his robe and he runs. That's our mission. The mission has not changed. The mission is still the same. We are redeemed people. We are a people that have been brought home. We are a people who know the love of the Father. And our mission, if you want to know what it looks like, look no further than this text. It's an old man running to the strangers. It's an old woman baking all this bread so they can just lavish, lavish the love of, of the Father upon a few strangers. Imagine if, if, if Christians in Grand Rapids, if this was a reputation. Imagine if this was Christians' reputation in our nation. 
Imagine if all over the world that this is what, when people thought of Christians, this is what came to their mind. And I, I know some of you are thinking right now, I know hospitality is important, but don't you think you're, you're, you're pushing this a little bit too far? Have you ever been a stranger in a strange place? Have you ever been, you know, in that place where you're the person that actually stands out, where you're the one with the strange clothes, you're the one with the strange way of talking, um, because if you've never been in that kind of situation, you'll never appreciate what Abraham and Sarah have just done. I remember the first time that I actually went to Israel. And Israel can be a very unnerving place. I mean, you see and hear these, these F-16s flying over your head on a regular basis. You see soldiers with their machine guns walking through the streets. You feel the tensions that exist in this part of the world between East and West, between Jew, uh, Christian, and Muslim. And I remember uh, on like the third or fourth day of the trip, feeling all of this, all of a sudden our guide led us into a Bedouin village. And as we're approaching the village, like, Ten of the kids from the village just came running up and uh, welcoming us. They took us back to one of the homes, one of the kids' mom's homes. The mom sat us down in her humble little place, and she proceeded to make bread for 50 people. Are you ready for this? Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed flour. <laughs> and not just flour, says Jesus, but three measures. Three seas. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is everything that Abraham and Sarah are doing. It's a feast. It's a banquet that we offer to strangers. I mean, Jesus pushes this further. And in, in Matthew 25, he says, when you entertain the stranger, you entertain me. It's as if you did that to me, says Jesus. And the reason why Jesus says this is because Jesus so identifies with the stranger. He so identifies with, 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 with the immigrant and the poor and the refugee and the orphan and the prisoner with the least of these. He identifies with them so much that he became them. And that's why I'm convinced that the kingdom of heaven has a lot less to do with what we are doing right now. Not saying that this isn't important, but it has a lot more to do with how we as God's people respond to the stranger, the poor, the, the refugee, the prisoner, the widow, the orphan. I mean, look at Jesus in our text. He's just one of us. I mean, it brought to mind Joan Osborne's song when, when, when she's talking about God. What, what, what if God were one of us? What if God were just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on a bus? And yeah, that's kind of how God is in this story. And in this, when, when we see him this way, we, we also can't forget that this is the one who, uh, through, through his power and authority, put the whole universe in its place. He, he set the galaxies in their place. 
all of the stars. He knows each of the stars by name. Even in the, in the biblical story, um, when he wants to just flex his, his glory just a little bit, like at Sinai or even like Isaiah, when he comes into, into his presence, there's doom and, and gloom. But listen, here he is. He's just ordinary. He's just a stranger. And look at Abraham. Abraham is so godlike. This great father is so like the great, great father in heaven. I mean, just like in the parable of the prodigal, when that, when that father looks up and sees the lost son, the father, all he instinctively does is he just shame, shamefully runs to him. Uh, Abraham is doing the same. And also like the father uh, welcomes him in with with the, the fattened calf and the party and the banquet. Abraham the same. You want to know what I think the biggest question facing the church today? Not if we sit here on Sunday mornings. But if we actually get out of our chairs and run. Are we going to run? Are we going to run to the stranger? Are we going to dishonor ourselves to bring honor to other people? Righteousness, that, that the true meaning of the word, I, I want to just keep pushing that into us. Sadak means to disadvantage ourselves, to bring advantage to someone else. And what about our homes and, and, and our flocks and our herds? Like, are we going to offer our finest? So we can just lavish the love of the Father onto people that need it. Jesus said, when you entertain the stranger, you did it to me. If you want to have a, a, a literal meal with Jesus, entertain a stranger. Strangers. The poor. The outcast. The least of these. Now, there's a, an, an, another piece to this that I just uh, can't go around because really Genesis 18 is you, you got to look at the whole, um, especially if we're looking at this. Because really, I, f I feel like this morning we're, we're getting marching orders. We're getting marching orders on, on who we are and what we're to be in this world. Now, three times in the Bible, it says this about Abraham. Abraham was a friend of God. That's really cool. Abraham was a friend of God. And, and, and it's really because of, of this text that we're looking at today. Um, friends eat together. And I think it's by verse 9 when, when this stranger says, um, I want to talk to Sarah, where Abraham's like, wait a second, you know, how do you... How, and then it dawns on him that, oh, <laughs> this isn't just a stranger. And see these two friends eating together, Abraham and, and, and Christ. And then when you go further into Genesis 18, when you go to verses 16 and 17, let's just read these. When the strangers got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. And then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? I mean, 
when you, when you say that to someone, like, I don't know if I should tell you, but um, that's what God here, or that's what Christ here is doing with Abraham. I don't know if I should tell you what I'm here for and, and, and what I'm about to do. Essentially, he's saying that so he can tell him what he's about to do. And what, what, what is happening here is God is inviting Abraham in now to sit at his table. Because here's the deal, when, when, when we have partnership with God, and I'm not just talking about having a, a, a personal relationship with God that, that benefits me, I'm talking about when we partner with him to redeem a world that he loves, God is going to let us in on what he's about and what he's about to do. Jesus is doing this all the time with the disciples. He's always telling them the plans of God and, and, and things that are about to happen. And here Christ tells Abraham the plans of God. And the plans of God, if you look, are very sobering. Look at verse 20. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. Not reached me. If not, I will know. This outcry is, is, is coming up to God. This, this word in Hebrew for, for outcry is the word ze'akah. It is used throughout the Bible. Ze'akah are the loud screams, the loud wails of the oppressed. It's the agonizing cries of the exploited and the abused. It's, it's this cry that, that God heard from the Hebrews when they were oppressed in Egypt and Pharaoh was throwing their firstborn into the Nile. God says, I heard your za'akah, your, your, your screams of agony. And then after God redeems his people, he tells them, if you produce that cry by afflicting the widow or the orphan, I will make you orphans. I will make you widows. This is how much God just, it, he, he recoils at that sound. He hears the cries. In Isaiah 5 verse 7, uh, God says to Israel, he says, um, I, I, I planted you like, like this vine in this, in this rich soil, and I went to you to, to, to look for fruit. I, I, I looked for goodness, but all I saw was violence. And then he says, I looked for Zedekah, Zedek, again that word for righteousness, which is to disadvantage ourselves to advantage someone else. God said, I, I, I looked for Zedekah, but all I heard was Zedekah. All I heard were the cries of the oppressed. God in our story has had enough. And I want us to see that when God has enough, it's his mercy. It's his, it's his bleeding heart of compassion that causes him to act with justice against Sodom and Gomorrah. Now here's what's interesting. God invites his friend to partner in this. This is why as he's talking to Abraham, two times he uses the word if. It's like he does what I, it's like God's doing what I do all the time with my staff. I'm, I'm an external processor, so much so that I have to tell my staff, right now, I, I'm not conclusive, I'm just external processing, I'm thinking out loud. Um, and, and I think that's exactly what God is doing. He's not conclusive yet. He, he uses the word if two times. He's like, he's, he's inviting Abraham in. 
And before he declares this verdict on Sodom and Gomorrah, it's like he's giving Sodom and Gomorrah due process. Due process that he's hoping Abraham will, will, will seize by becoming the defense attorney or the advocate in that world. It's, the, it's, it's a priest to intercede on behalf of Sodom. And what does Abraham do? He seizes the opportunity. Verse 22, he stands before the Lord. To stand before the Lord is exactly what a priest does. This is technical language. A priest stands before the Lord to represent the people, to act as their advocate, to stand in the gap. And I want us to see how wicked Sodom is. Because Sodom's wickedness stands in stark contrast to Abraham's righteousness. Just in terms of these strangers. I mean, these strangers come to, to Abraham's tent and, and he runs to them and he dishonors himself to bring honor to them. He feasts them. When these strangers go to Sodom, they do everything they can to violate them. To essentially gang rape them. So verse 23, it says Abraham approaches God. The word approaches is a technical term. It's what an attorney does when he approaches the bench. Abraham is coming before the judge of the universe to priest. To stand in the gap. To act as an advocate on behalf of Sodom. Gomorrah. And he pleads with God. God, spare them. God, would you please forgive them? And if you want to know what we are called to be in the world, it is to live in stark contrast to our world. In the way that it describes Abraham in, in verses 18 and 19, the way of Abraham is essentially Micah 6, 8. It's to do justice it's to love mercy. It's to walk humbly with our God. And we are also called to priest. We are called to stand in the gap. Not just for our marriages. Not just for our families. Not just for our children. But even for whatever Sodom and Gomorrah is to us in our world. Whatever we might consider grievously wicked. Um, wicked even to God, we are called to be priests, to stand before God and to say, God, would you please spare them, forgive them? But see, this is the call that God has always placed on his people. When, when, when Abraham's family becomes a nation, and, and God rescues them from Egypt in Exodus 19. God is going to say to them, see how I redeemed you, how I rescued you, how I carried you on eagle's wings, how I made you my most treasured possession, uh, my very bride. He says, you now are to all be priests, every single one of you. You are to be a nation of priests. And, and as priests, what God wants is for this people to stand before him and to to pray on behalf of the nations around Israel. And this is picked up in the New Testament in 1 Peter 2 verse 9 where, where Peter tells the church, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. 
We're all priests. And we're all called to, to, to partner with God, to, to, to reclaim um, a world that he loves, to redeem people that he loves. And, and the way that we do this is through intercessory prayer where our world is in pain, where our world is broken, even in places that are utterly wicked. There God's people are to be in prayer. When you look at the call of God, even on the first two priests, um, Adam and Eve, I mean, what God does is he entrusts his whole creation to them. He says, steward it. Steward every last inch of it. Rule it. Subdue it. For my glory. Rule means to exercise authority over. Uh, subdue, literally that word there, means to beat something into shape. It's, it, it's, it's, it's to conform whatever is out of shape back into the shape that God intended when he made it. And one of the primary ways that we rule and subdue this world for God is through prayer. I mean, there's an amazing text in Ezekiel 22 that I'll, I'll just actually put before you right now. The people of the land practice extortion. They commit robbery. They oppress the poor and the needy. They mistreat the foreigner, denying them justice. God says, I look for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. You see what God's saying? I couldn't find a single priest who was priesting. There wasn't a single person who stood before me and stood in the gap on behalf of the extortion, on behalf of the poor, on the behalf of, of all the injustice. Not a single person. Therefore, God says, I, I, I had to judge it. All that Abraham is to his world and to his city, we are to be for our world, we are to be for Grand Rapids. Who is it right now that you are standing in the gap for? Who are you an advocate for? Who are you standing before God as, as their representative? And then, you know, this even includes the Sodom and Gomorrahs of our world. Now listen, I, the last thing I want to do is like guilt you. Like, what's wrong with us? Why are we not doing this more? Because first of all, I love this church. And this church is incredible and, and doing incredible things. I still wish, though, our Wednesday night time when we gather to intercede for, for the city and the things of the city, that, that that gathering be bigger than this. Um. But I grew up in, in a church that operated by guilting people to do things. I mean, there's a thing, a very real thing called Dutch guilt. Um, and <laughs> you laugh because you know that guilt, some of you. Um, 
is something we should want to do, and I'll tell you why. We, we, we should so want it. It's because God spared us. He spared us. I mean, I, I, I think about in this story who Abraham is standing before. He's standing before Christ. He, he, he's pleading with Christ. He's, he's, he's saying to Christ, Christ, would you spare them? Would you forgive them? And I, I just see Christ almost tears coming down his cheeks because here is Abraham being everything that Christ is. Christ is the great high priest. Hebrews 7 says he lives to intercede for us all the time. And, and so here you have Abraham priesting before the, the greatest priest, um, and he's doing it with chutzpah, he's doing it with guts. He, he says things like, how dare the, 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 the righteous God of the universe wipe out the righteous with the wicked? And then he starts making his case before God. He says, God, what if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom? Will you spare it? God says, for 50 righteous people? Absolutely. How about 40? Yeah. How about 30? Of course. How about 20? Yes, Abraham, for 20 people, I'll spare the city. God, how about for 10? And God says, absolutely, Abraham. I mean, we need to see how, how great God's heart is to forgive. In fact, in this story, it's, it, it's not that God runs out of grace. It's that Abraham runs out of guts. I mean, it's almost like he has God on the ropes, and then he just quits. He goes home, and that's the end of the story. And I know what you want right now. It's like you want it to continue. You, you want Abraham to push this even further. You want Abraham to say next, God, what about for just one righteous person? But see, Abraham stops, I think, and doesn't go there because he knows he doesn't have one righteous person in that city. Not even Lot, not even himself. But if Abraham would have presented that to God. God, what if for one righteous person, would you spare this wicked city? And I know God's answer because we have God's heart. He would have said if it's the right righteous one, if it's my righteous son. And see, that's the gospel. The gospel is that we're all wicked. And that we're all deserving of the judgment that God brought to Sodom and Gomorrah. But here's the deal. We've been spared. And the reason we've been spared is because 2,000 years ago on a cross, Jesus took our judgment day. Our judgment day has already occurred. We do not await a judgment day. Jesus took our judgment day. As Romans 8.32 says, God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for his all. That's why we've been spared is because God didn't spare his son. And why did he do that? So that we not just could be spared but so he could be redeemed, so we could be brought in, so God could bring us back into his family. And here's the deal, if, if, if you understand this, 
You're going to live your life to priests. You're going to want to be an advocate for lost people. You're going to want to act as a representative to God for the broken. You're going to want to intercede for your neighbors. You're going to want to stand in the gap even on behalf of the wicked. Why? Because we were all those things, but he spared us. Because Jesus stood in the gap for us, we now stand in the gap for others. Let's pray. God, we just thank you that you looked at us and you spared us because you love us. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only begotten son. God, let that, let that reality be, be, be precious to us, precious. So precious, God, that it would, it would motivate us. It would cause our hearts, God, to want to be to the world everything that you have been to us. Because you have been a good, good father, God, may we be good father to your world, lavishing the love of the father, because you spared us, God, would we pray that you would spare even the Sodom and Gomorrahs of our world, God, that we would be a people, a nation of priests who do justice, who love mercy, who walk humbly with God, and who stand in the gap on behalf of people that need you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.